The following presentation is from the 41st Annual Addiction Treatment Leadership Conference presented by the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers held in Washington, D.C., May 5th through the 7th, 2019. The following is the Quality Assurance Guidebook Care Competency Training Breakout Session QA4 titled Outcome Measure and Treatment Philosophy, Tracking Patient Progress and Measuring Outcomes, Panelists include Holland Hirsch, Ph.D., Dr. Greg Hobelman, M.D., and Julia Finken. The moderator is Carl Kester. Hi, good afternoon, folks. Come on in. As you see by the slide here on our screen, this is the Quality Assurance Breakout Session number four, Outcome Measures and Treatment Philosophy. Hopefully you're where you intended to be in this afternoon. My name is Carl Kester. I am a member of the board of NAATP. My day job is I am the CEO of Lakeside Mile Recovery Centers, a continuum of care uh, for alcohol and drug treatment in the greater Seattle area. I'd like to share with you my job today, our title is, is moderator. You look like a very unruly group, so I'll be, <laughs> I'll be very active. Uh, really, my job here is to do a very short setup, uh, introduce the panel, uh, share the format, and, and, and get into some information. We have uh, really, in my mind, a, a fantastic conference going here. And one of the things that I did prior to this session about an hour ago was just cross out my introductions. A part of when you have a panel like this and a topic like this, perhaps you're going to do some setup to the audience. I think this entire conference has been set up to this information, and we'll get to the experts, and that will help you make decisions either to improve what you're doing, uh, to begin something new, or to uh, move on from where you're at. I'm, I'm pleased to introduce our distinguished panel. To my left is Holland Hirsch. Holland is the Director of Public and Behavioral Health at the Omni Institute. She was the principal investigator on the NAATP Outcomes Project, our pilot program, and the lead author of our implementation toolkit. And for those of you that have been here and paying attention, she was also last night's quality improvement winner and with her organization. Julia Finklin is the executive director of behavior. Excuse me. She's Julia's there at the far left. She's the executive director of behavioral health care at the Joint Commission. She has her uh, bachelor's in nursing and has an MBA as well, and has 30 years of experience in quality assurance and, and the operation of health care. Dr. Greg Kobelman is the chief medical officer at the Ashley Addiction Treatment Center. He's a psychiatrist with a master's degree in public health and has a pain medicine fellowship as well from John Hopkins. So there's more information in your conference brochures on each of those individuals, but you get a sense from that brief introduction, uh, their skill and, and um, experience that brings them to the table today. Our goal of this session is that we're going to go through the panel twice in kind of a presentation format. And in a simple sense, they're going to start general and then get more specific from a research perspective, from a accreditation and a regulatory perspective, and from a practice perspective in terms of what this topic means to them, uh, where they've seen success, uh, the varieties out there, how this compares to what I will refer to as mainstream or established healthcare. And as we continue to move from uh, the art of addiction treatment to the science of addiction treatment, how those two topics can be married. Uh, really, to sum up the comments that I crossed out uh, prior to our session here, uh, is if you can't measure it, you can't improve it, right? So that quote really says things. And, and as we move from here's research, 
uh, and here's inventory and where we fall in between and the outcomes and, and really we're all challenged, those of us that have been doing this for a little while, is how do you measure trudging the road to happy destiny, right? And, and then the answer might be one day at a time. Well, another answer might be, you know, what are the indicators? What, what's working in group? What's working in individual therapy? What's working a transfer? What's working a three months, six months, a year? And for those in long-term recovery. So it, it's very exciting for me to see this kind of conversation, uh, to see the type of energy and talent that's associated with taking the, the core principles and philosophy of what we do and make sure that society can, and can grow because of the work. Following our, our time through both panels, uh, we will have question and answer from the audience. So please keep notes uh, and, and know that the panelists are, are available here in the session. And I know that all three of them will be welcoming comments after the session as well. So with that, I'd like to introduce Holland. And thank you everyone for being here this afternoon. I'm sure you are um, all having a busy day and I appreciate your time as we come to the end of the first day, the first full day of the conference. Can I just get a show of hands who was in the presentation this morning by Dr. Kelly? Okay, good. So I think we're going to be covering a lot of similar information and my first slide today is why outcomes and I don't think that I need to make this sale to this audience but I want to make sure that I am grounding us all in common language when we talk about research and evaluation and how it relates to outcomes. So I will be talking, like Carl said, at a really high level for the first section of this panel about outcomes and research and evaluation. And then when we get into the second half, I'll share some data with you all so that we can ground our conversation in some real life examples, including data from the NAATP pilot, as well as some other example data. So we can be thinking together about how you can use data to inform your practice. So like I said, I want to ground us all in a common definition of evaluation, which we define as evaluation research is the systematic application of social research procedures for assessing the conceptualization, design, implementation, and utility of social intervention programs. And there's two key words that I really want to emphasize here. The first actually is in bold, systematic. So when we are talking about collecting outcomes data, we want to make sure that we are doing it in best practice and grounded in systematic social science research methods so that we are ensuring the data we collect are valid. Um, and then the other word I want to highlight here is assessing. So we are talking about informing our programs and informing practice and informing improvement. And so the assessment piece of this is really, really important. When we think about evaluation, we are talking about having data to demonstrate your theory of change. And I am positing that we all in this room who are, who are providing treatment have a similar theory of change that goes something like, if patients receive treatment in our program, then they will improve their health and wellness, live a self-directed life, and strive to reach their full potential. And that is SAMHSA's working definition of recovery. So, the reason you want to collect outcomes data is to help demonstrate your case or your theory of change about your program. You're demonstrating your impact. Starting with your theory of change, 
you move into the research and into the methods that will help you demonstrate that theory of change. So you're collecting information. This is measurement. You are then analyzing that information and using that information to answer these key questions. Is your program effective? How can your pro program improve? What elements of your program are most effective? What elements of your program have most room for improvement? And in research, we think about this as where you want your feedback loop to be. You're collecting data to constantly inform your practice and to make it better. So three reasons I want to point out why you would um, want to collect and then use your outcomes data. And I've, I've already sort of driven home point one, program improvement. Our goal is to provide better treatment for patients. So we're using data to understand what's working and what's not. The second piece is to demonstrate the value of treatment. Of course, we're all thinking about payers and funders so that we can demonstrate the efficacy of programming and the impact that we have on patient wellness for um, demonstrating reasons why we should receive payment for our, for our programming. Um, and then I also want to bring this back to the patients. And Dr. Kelly talked about this this morning, but the feedback loop that patients are receiving when they are seeing data and seeing the impact through data on their own improvement in treatment emphasizes the, the, um, the reason to have hope that treatment is working and helps the treatment itself. And then finally, um, another reason for collecting outcomes data is to benchmark outcome, to benchmark your outcomes. Um, I have felt like this is a little bit taboo to talk about in, in this space, but I think it's important as we are moving as an industry towards talking about collecting common outcomes data, and especially with the NAATP's release of the toolkit this year, we're talking more and more about common data collection. And when we talk about benchmarking outcomes, you're first wanting to understand, is your program meeting standards? in the field, and if not, how can you improve? And then the flip side of that, that we heard a lot about from Dr. Kelly this morning, is where is my program overperforming potentially? Do we have innovative or pr promising practice happening here at our facility that can help inform the field? So both the improvement piece and then also the understanding where you're doing really well so that you can emphasize that piece of your treatment program and share with the community. Um, so like I said, I'm going to turn to data next, but before that I am going to turn it over to Julia. Okay, so the Joint Commission, we've been asking our providers to measure for decades. And what we learned recently was that um, measurement alone, asking them to measure, was not moving the dial forward. And we needed to be a part of that solution. Uh, so in 2016, uh, we looked at our standard and said, we need to do something different. We need to do something um, more profound to help our providers because ultimately our mission is that the individuals that you all serve will receive um, excellent high quality and safe care and we needed to do something uh, to move that dial. So we looked at um, 
why do we need to change the standard? Well, the research, as Dr. Kelly talked about uh, today, really showed that the, the robust way to really improve um, care treatment and services uh, was to look at measurement-based care. And so we started down that um, path and looked at, you know, what can we do in terms of our standard to help organizations really embrace and adopt a measurement-based care philosophy. So we, um, as usual, we put together a technical advisory panel. So when we're going to make a, a standard change, uh, we get uh, industry experts together, we get researchers, we get experts in the field. So some of you out there in this audience may have been a part of that process. I hope that you were. Um, and so we brought that um, advisory panel together and said, what does a standard need to look like? What do we need to do to strengthen our, our measurement standards? Um, they gave us many ideas. Uh, we'd made some revisions. And then we took it out to the field, and we put it out for public comment. We did learning visits to organizations. We piloted uh, standards. We had focus groups. And in November of 2016, we came out with some uh, strength and language in our standards. And then we gave the field a year, actually over a year, uh, to implement um, because we knew that this was really a big change. Typically, we give uh, the field about six months to embrace the change before we start serving uh, to it. But this is a was a much bigger uh, change, and we needed to provide everybody with resources uh, to make those changes. So in January of 2018, what went into effect were really three primary tenets of measurement-based care. The first was that we required organizations to use a standardized instrument. Dr. Kelly talked about that a little bit um, this morning. But the instrument was intended to monitor the care, treatment, and service progress of the individuals that was being served. And that there's a component of that that we have to gather data, we have to aggregate it, analyze it, and use it to inform changes in uh, the care to the individual. And then um, added to that, we ask our organizations to aggregate that data across all of the individuals that they're serving to inform how they can improve care, treatment, and services for the population that they're serving. So I'm just going to go through this. So what is measurement-based care? Well, it's using an objective tool to inform care treatment or services. And with the use of that tool, uh, we're able to, to better um, care for the individuals we serve. So don't shoot me. I'm an old surveyor. So I, for many, many years, I surveyed. And when I would talk to clinicians and say, um, you know, what are your goals for this individual? And they would say, well, here, here they are. And I would look at them and say, well, how do you know you're achieving these goals? Because they really weren't measurable. And the, and the clinicians would say, well, we don't really do that. We don't really need to have measurable goals. Well, the world has changed over time, and we need to measure, and we need to know, are our, our clients progressing? So now we ask um, that you use an instrument and it, it doesn't have to be a complex instrument. If you look at most of the standardized instruments out there, there may be 15 questions. 
Uh, they take three to five minutes for somebody to self-report or for a practitioner to administer. Um, they give robust information about how that uh, individual is doing. Uh, it doesn't have to be graphed in a fancy manner. It can be looking at data points if that's uh, the resources that you have. But ultimately, the provider is looking at um, the uh, data in determining is this individual making progress or have they stagnated or are they uh, deteriorating and then working with that individual to say what do we need to do together collaboratively to change your plan for care treatment and services so that you do progress uh, what's working what's not working and it's an iterative process so one of the um, hallmarks of measurement-based care is that it's, in, it's done repeatedly. We're measuring repeatedly, we're assessing progress, and we're revising the plan for care treatment and services as we go. So measurement-based care is not measuring at the beginning of treatment and measuring at the end of treatment. It's that tool that you use to inform uh, the care that you're going to deliver throughout the course of care. So the implementation of the tool is really going to vary. Uh, we have probably 100 people here. I probably don't have two of you that have an organization that delivers the exact same services to the exact same population in the exact same mix of settings. So it's really looking at what is going to be needed for your organization. What is the right tool for us? And then how often does that tool need to be repeated? And how am I going to implement it in my organization? So the instruments, as we define it, is they need to be reliable and valid as a repeated measure, number one. They need to be able to be sensitive to change. So when your client is changing in their status, it needs to be picked up by that instrument. And it has to be able to discriminate between populations. So we know that there um, are individuals who need service and who don't need service, who, who clinically uh, meet your criteria for service and those that don't. So the instrument needs to detect and discriminate between those two populations. So what, in our terms, is not a measurement-based care uh, tool or a standardized instrument for use uh, for us. There's a lot of really great measures out there. It doesn't mean if we say it doesn't meet our criteria, it doesn't mean it's not a good measure. It just means that it doesn't meet what we've determined as like our criteria for measurement-based care. So it's not something that measures whether you're using evidence-based care or not, or clinical practice guidelines. It's not patient satisfaction surveys or whether um, uh, individuals are adhering to medication, they're complying. And again, it's not something that's administered just at the beginning of care and after treatment. Um, so we recognized and heard very loudly, very clearly from the field that they needed some help identifying instruments. Um, so we took on the task of vetting um, instruments. So we have a portal, has 64 instruments posted on it at this time. Uh, we vetted them to make sure that they meet the criteria. 
Uh, they cover all types of services, settings, diagnostic groups um, that um, anybody is welcome to go on and take a look at. You don't have to be a Joint Commission accredited organization. It's an open portal on our website. Uh, please take a look at them. Uh, we don't endorse any of the instruments. We don't require our organizations to use just those instruments. It's just a resource, a repository uh, for everyone. Um, there's also, NIH has about 50 instruments posted. 34 of those meet our criteria. And the Kennedy Forum. But you can do a web search and find lots of instruments out there, or you can develop your own. And with that, I'll turn it over to Greg. All right, so I'm coming a little bit more from a um, provider perspective, and the importance of outcomes of, is evident. Um, but I want to talk a little bit about why they've sort of emerged the way that they have and why we're not where we need to be, and then um, start talking about some ideas about what we might want to do. So first of all, there is a, a large divide in addiction, addiction medicine and the addiction field in general. Uh, we've seen it for a long time. Why does this occur? One. Um, Addiction hasn't been considered a medical disorder for very long. If you look at the history of it, I mean, it's been, addiction's been described in history forever, but the first time you even see it described as a, a disorder uh, or a disease is by Benjamin Rush in 1784, and that sort of sank like a Led Zeppelin. It didn't really go anywhere uh, for a long, long time. So it was not helped at all by the Harrison Narcotic Act of 1914 and Prohibition, which then placed um, any sort of addiction in the, the realm of a moral failing rather than a medical problem. So that's sort of how addiction has developed in the medical world. Now, we haven't done much with regard to treatment either. So you look at the gap, I mean, uh, how treatment evolved, and it's very different than it has in, evolved for other medical disorders. So, you know, diabetes uh, and the treatment of diabetes, treatment of hypertension has evolved a certain way. Along the lines of how infectious diseases have been treated, um, but addiction, uh, addiction has not been, uh, hasn't evolved in the same way. Uh, in fact, if you look and how we even talk about patients, I hear it here all the time and everywhere I go, I hear it talking about clients rather than talking about patients. And that is a, a mindset. When we talk about treating a chronic progressive and fatal disease, we typically treat patients. Um, so, so that difference in mindset has persisted. Um, I think we've improved tremendously over time, but when we look at how treatment evolved initially, it was with Alcoholics Anonymous in the 30s, um, and it was people with substance use disorders or alcoholism at the time who wanted to help other peop people with the same problem. And they've done a phenomenal job. And, and they've done so well that for a long time, all doctors had and all medical providers had was go to AA. But that did start to change. We started to learn more about it in the 60s and 70s. We started to understand this as a brain disorder. And so in the academic world, that research has persisted and has really evolved. And now we understand it not only as a brain disorder, but also as a disorder um, that evolves the environment and the psychosocial piece, which we have known about for a long, long time. But the evolution of treatment um, has really 
discouraged the, the true measurement of outcomes like we have looked at them for other disorders. There's a huge gap that still exists between harm reduction and evidence-based treatment. And this is unfortunate. Um, and we see it at different conferences, the way things are discussed. Um, but there shouldn't be a gap. And I think that that gap is starting to close because in reality, everything that we do to get someone to a place of abstinence is harm reduction. And of course we want to reduce harm. There's no question about it. We may look at abstinence as an ideal, which is a very good thing, um, but what is abstinence? And if we talk about abstinence as not using drugs, or mind or mood altering substances, that's a good way to think about it. Because we can use medications to treat addiction and still be abstinent. Evidence in, in and of itself, and what evidence-based means, is very ill-defined. What we hear, or tend to hear, is that evidence in addiction medicine is the use of MAT, medication-assisted treatment. And abstinence-based treatment is not evidence-based. It's certainly not true. There's plenty of evidence for abstinence-based treatment, and there's very, very good evidence for the use of medications. But not all evidence is the same. And we don't really have the sophistication. Many people do not have the sophistication to understand what really good evidence is. Because there's low-grade evidence, there's high-moderate, and there's, there's high-grade evidence. We do have very, very good evidence for the use of, of agonist treatment, for example, and we have not as strong evidence for many of the things that we do. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but we have to understand how to talk about it. So an article in Good Housekeeping is very different than a, than a case control, which is, or case study in general, which is very different than a double-blinded, placebo-controlled clinical trial. And that's what we ultimately want. It's going to be very difficult to get there, but that's the gold standard. And we, we, we do want to understand what good evidence is. And I love the idea of uh, measurement-based and using the different terminology or outcome-based treatment rather than evidence-based treatment. But we do have to understand what that means. So second, um, oh, and, and people unfortunately have, quote, statistics that are not very good. You know, Marvin was talking last night, which I thought was great, about the John Oliver piece. And there was a piece in that where he was, he was showing several um, treatment providers that were stating their success rates. And they all tended to be 85 to 90 percent, very high success rates. But what does that mean? Who knows? You know? And looking at abstinence during treatment and at the end of, a, of an inpatient stay isn't a very good thing to measure. Right? That's not how we want to measure success. So we have to understand how to better, better measure that success. And real statistics are difficult to obtain. And what I'm talking about is statistically significant data. It's hard. It's hard, particularly in addiction medicine, for a few reasons. Number one, the funding environment has never been great. It's still not great. And the funding environment um, in general in medicine is not good right now. But it's, it's always been poor in psychiatry and addiction medicine. Number two, the, the treatment facilities in general because of the way they evolved, 
don't have the infrastructure to support it. They don't have the academic component and the understanding and the academic rigor that will allow them to get statistically significant results. And finally, follow-up is hard. It's always been hard. How do you follow people that disappear? So really trying to figure out how to get that follow-up will be, will be key. We need to standardize, uh, we need standardization in general to truly um, compare treatment modalities. So we need consensus about treatment. I think we've been talking about that a lot, so I don't need to go over it too much. But when we look at uh, pure abstinence, I think it's a poor measure in general. If you receive a 90% on a test, you don't fail. If you receive, you know, if you're not 100% abstinent, does that mean you fail completely? We have to consider it. But we can look at things like amount used. That's a better measurement. And we certainly should want to be looking at it in addition to complete abstinence. And we have a variety of things that we want to look at. So we look at school and work. Not only do you have a job or are you in school, but what's your performance in school? What's your attendance in school? Engagement in treatment. Not only are you continuing in treatment, but what is the engagement? Or engagement in a 12-step program or any mutual support program. Utilization of health care services. Utilization of social services, legal issues, and a variety of quality life measures, just to name a few. Things like uh, relationships and improvement in relationships. And we've talked a lot about these, but we do have to nail down what we want to really look at so we can compare across measures. We all do treat different demographics and different people through different programming, and that's fine and good, but we absolutely want to standardize what we want to measure. We also need study designs that produce accurate statistics. And I think this is where we really do have to have help from academia. The panel that was just before us was fantastic because it was full of people who really understand this very well. There has to be an, an epidemiology and biostats background in order to be able to de design these studies, collect the data, and then be able to analyze it to come up with uh, significance. The primary function overall, I think, is to what we want to gain from this is to inform treatment. This is on an ideal level, which is great. We do want to inform treatment. This has been done very well in PHP programs for physicians and for pilot programs. We have really, really good data. They do well over five years. It's about an 80% success rate. This is remaining abstinent and getting back to work. And how do they get there? They get there through long-term inpatient treatment, followed by outpatient treatment with a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and continued monitoring. So we're throwing the book at them. And in addition to that, they have a big carrot in front of them. The carrot is getting back to work. So that's a particular population, but it can be done. So we know that treatment works, but we don't know what components of treatment are working for them. And that's where we really want to figure out how do we pick apart treatment itself and figure out what works. Because once we do that, then we can get um, the payers to pay for it. And right now, it's very difficult from an inpatient standpoint because there is not great data. There are not great data right now about length of stay and so forth. And I don't think we're going to find a one-size-fits-all. Of course we're not. But we would do want to get information and evidence that inpatient treatment has been effective for a certain population. That will help us as a secondary, uh, as a secondary 
function to be able to get treatment paid for. And finally, informing that treatment can potentially help to impact policy. But unfortunately, policy doesn't always, isn't always the result of good evidence, so that may not be effective, but at least it gives us a chance. So that's round one. Now we're going to do a little deeper dive in round two and get into some of the specifics of, of, of what we've been talking about. So, Colin, back to you. All right. Like I said, I'm going to share some data with you now. Um, let's see. So what can you learn from outcomes evaluation? And I just want to make a quick clarification because um, Julie and I will both be talking about similar concepts. In a lot of our work at the Omni Institute, we are focused with treatment providers on looking at longitudinal outcomes evaluation. And what I mean by that is what are long-term outcomes for patients after they leave treatment. And I think Julia is going to be talking a little bit more about measurement-based care and the um, feedback process that happens in patients. So I just want to make sure that we're grounded in what data we're looking at together. When we um, collect outcomes data or longitudinal outcomes data in our work, um, there are three main questions that we want to ask. The first being, who are your patients? The second being, what are your patients' experience in treatment? And the third being, what are your patients' experience outside of or after treatment? And the reason that these three questions are really important in tandem with one another is that they help you get at and understand exactly what Greg was just talking about. What elements of treatment predict longer-term success in a patient's recovery process? And what types of people do well in our program? And so I'll talk about the data at all three levels. I'm going to share with you um, data that come from the NAATP pilot. You all have access to those data in the full report that was released with the toolkit. I believe it's available in the conference app. And if you can't find it there, you can definitely find it on the National Association's website. So I'm just going to be sharing a snapshot today, but I really encourage you to take a look at that report to see the full um, the full report of data. I'm also going to be sharing some data today that um, mirror outcomes that we've seen in other studies with treatment providers. They are not real data. So when it's an NAATP outcome, it will say that on the slide. And when it's data that I have, um, that I'm using for demonstration purposes, it will not say N NAATP data. So I just want to make that clear as we move forward. So who are, are our patients is the first question. These are the patients who were in the NAATP Outcomes Pilot Program. 58% of them were male, 47% were employed, 91% identified their race or ethnicity as white, and about a third were married. So when we're thinking about outcomes for the NAATP program, we're thinking about, in general, people who are described by these characteristics. When we want to understand who are our patients, we're also interested in other things, not just their demographic characteristics, but of course things like their substance use history. Um, I'm going backwards. This is forwards. Um, okay, 
substance use history. These are not real data, but they um, mirror much of what we see. So primary substance used in the 30 days prior to treatment is typically alcohol. Um, and then you can see what it might look like for other substance use history when patients come into treatment. I'm sure that this does not look surprisingly different from what you see in your own treatment programs. Another critical patient characteristic is mental health. So in these sample data, the majority of patients experienced anxiety, depression, and hopelessness in the past 30 days. Again, these are just a snapshot of the types of data you might collect about your patients so that you can understand how the patient characteristics relate to longer-term outcomes. The next question is, what are our patients' experiences in treatment? So you might be interested in the elements of the treatment program that participants utilized. Again, these are NAATP outcomes pilot data. They're real data that you have access to. We saw in the pilot program that more than 90% of participants attended group therapy lectures and peer group meetings weekly or several times per week. Fewer participants attended a family portion of the program weekly or more. This has to do with how the programs were structured, not because participants necessarily weren't going to those portions of the program, but because they were probably not available weekly or more. We also looked at medication during treatment. Um, this is a snapshot of data. It doesn't come from NAATP, but we did collect those data in the pilot. In these sample data, more than half of participants reported taking psychotropic medications during treatment. Another aspect of treatment, of course, is participants' actual self-report um, or rating of the helplessness of, or the helplessness, the helpfulness, excuse me, of treatment. This is an example, again, from the NAATP pilot program of participants' ratings of treatment. Overall, um, participants rated treatment as being very helpful. Other aspects were talking with other clients, group therapy, the family portion of the program, individual counseling, peer group meetings, AA, lectures, and education. And then a final piece of this that I want to discuss is we've been talking a lot about validated tools and measures. We've been talking a lot about measurement-based care. Um, but I don't want to overlook the importance of the patient and their experience in treatment. And one of the ways that we can understand this as the researchers or the data collectors and not as clinicians in the treatment setting is to ask, ask patients about their experience in treatment. And we can collect a lot of very rich qualitative data that helps us get back to answering that question about whether patients are, are becoming well and are um, living a life that is, is healthful. Um, so this is just an example of a patient report of what they believe will keep them from using creating a large support group from AA, my church, and other friends that are not using, talking with my sponsor regularly, and having accountability. It will be very important for me to start getting back into the things that I love, filmmaking, producing and directing, music, etc. And so I think it's just important to note that the patient voice is, is not just in the ratings, um, but also in the experience, in the self-reported experience. And then the final question is, what are our patients' experiences after treatment? So these are data from the pilot program again. This is participants' reported abstinence in the time from intake to treatment 
up to a year after treatment. And just to ground you in what you're seeing, the lighter blue bars are the number of survey respondents who were reached at each follow-up time point in the pilot study. We surveyed participants at one month, three months, six months, nine months, and 12 months after their intake date of treatment. There were 748 participants in the pilot study. At one month, we reached 435 of those individuals, and 70% of them reported being abstinent. At a year, we reached 251 participants, and 65% of those participants reported being abstinent. Now, we get back to the piece about what predicts abstinence and other indicators of recovery, and this is where it's um, important to be thinking about what you collect at the beginning of your study, what you're collecting while patients are in treatment, and then how you use those data to inform what's happening long-term after treatment. We did a lot of analysis looking at what predicted these outcomes. What, what were the greatest predictors of participants' report of abstinence? There, there's more detail in the report, but the greatest predictor of abstinence at 12 months was participants' participation in support groups, such as AA. I don't think that will be, come as a surprise in this room, but having the data to support that is, is really important. There are, of course, other indicators of recovery, so I'm just going to share a couple of other quick examples. Here's an example that um, mirrors what we see in, in much of our work, which is that patients' self-reported life satisfaction on a number of domains, including family connections, work, finances, um, starts very low at intake, and we see a very sharp um, increase in life satisfaction from the time between intake and discharge that is typically sustained over the long term after the time that patients leave treatment over a year. And then another piece of data that I want to share just to um, highlight the way that you might be able to look at some nuances in your outcome data um, the Omni Institute is located in Colorado where we have legalization of marijuana. We have worked with providers who have been interested in the long-term impact of legislation in our state. So what happens for patients long-term in terms of their substance use once they've left treatment as a result of changes in our state law? Will people relapse more using marijuana is a question. Um, and here's some, some sample data, again, that we've collected that shows trends in use for people who report using any substance, alcohol, and marijuana. So those rates of use start high on the left at intake, drop to zero at discharge, um, and, then, and then rise over time. Um, but you can see that these data don't support the hypothesis that because of legalization of marijuana, we see a really sharp increase in use or relapse um, using marijuana. So that's just one example of how the long-term data can help inform you about what's happening for our patients in your program and inform your practice. If you want to know more, I'd be happy to chat with you after the session, and we will also be talking tomorrow at 10.30 in the general session about the toolkit itself, and I hope to see you all there. Thank you. Okay, so I'm back to talk about the practical applications of uh, using your data. So. To, 
to really get data that is practical for your organization, it really starts with leadership. And leadership really understanding the focus uh, of what your organization does. So who do you serve? Um, is it primarily addiction treatment only? Uh, do you also uh, serve for mental health? Is it adults? Is it children? What are you hoping to learn from the measurement data? What's going to be the most practical and useful for your clinicians? So, that, so the question is to ask yourself, why this instrument? And then we know that when we try to make big changes or even little changes, uh, that if we involve the people who the change is going to impact in making the decisions and making the selection, we have a much better chance of getting things fully implemented and having them be useful. Um, so, you know, how are you involving uh, your staff in selecting the instruments and piloting the instruments? and sharing the value of the instrument with other staff and training uh, staff? And how, how are you educating everyone on administration, scoring, and interpretation? All of this is really critically important to lay the foundation for really successful measurement-based care. And then using the data. Um, so when we go out to survey organizations, we use a process called Patient Tracer, and it's something that you can all use in your organizations that I found to be really effective. And that is that you really trace the course of care of the individual patients that you serve. And so you're looking to see how is the data for measurement-based care used uh, practically every day by your clinicians and by your clients. So. Um, looking at um, the instrument, and, and say the instrument is supposed to be administered every encounter, um, and, you're, and you're wanting to know, did uh, the client get feedback on their progress? Uh, did the clinician review the instrument and use it to collaborate with the client to change uh, their plan for care, treatment, and services where that was indicated? One of the places to look is the record. You can look at the record of care, and determine if, indeed, the instrument was used as it was designed and as you had hoped to implement it. And then talking to your clients and saying, you know, um, tell me a little bit about how your clinician knows how you're progressing. Hopefully they're going to tell you, well, you know, every time I come or, or once a week or once a month, I complete this uh, questionnaire, and then we sit and we talk about it. and um, And then... Uh, we dis we decide what we're going to do next in my treatment so that I continue to progress or I can or we can turn the course. Uh, talking to your clinicians and you know what have they learned um, on an individual client and when do they take uh, their results um, on clients and get help from the treatment team and talking to the treatment team. You know how do you look at um, the individual client? Uh, records. So it, it's all looking at it through the course of, of care, treatment, and service. So this is supposed to be data, and I'm going to bring the whole thing up. Okay. So, okay, let me go back one. Okay, so when you're looking at an instrument, um, this, the top line that you're looking at is really somebody who 
um, are, are individuals who really don't need service, correct? They're above the clinical cutoff line, which you see here at the 56 point. So anybody that falls below that clinical cutoff line would be appropriate for you for uh, using a measurement-based care or a standardized instrument. The red line shows what the expected progress would be uh, for an individual cl uh, client. And then the, the lower line shows uh, for somebody who does fall b below that clinical cutoff, uh, how their care would progress without treatment. Okay? So here's an example of looking at one client's data. So you can see that um, the data falls for 10 visits uh, around that expected progress line, right? So there's some variation. It's not going to be a perfect uh, track every time, uh, but it falls around that line. So we know that that client is progressing. But now we have a client, a different client, that is not progressing along that line, correct? So it's... Um, declining and in fact they're at risk for failure. So this is the kind of information that your clinicians can look at and say, you know what, I need to change course. I need to work with this client to see what is not working for them. What do I need to change in terms of my, um, my plan? Do I need, is this the right level of care for this client? Do I have the right blend of group and individual therapy? Uh, is there an issue with clinical alliance here? Um, do I need to add some other modalities of treatment or some ancillary treatments like yoga or meditation or pet therapy? So all of those things start to come into consideration. Do I need to get support, peer support or family support in here? But you see a very clear indication very early on that things are not working for this client. So again, it doesn't have to be sophisticated use of the data. Um, if you have access to Excel, uh, if you use individual um, client data, uh, whatever it takes to make sure that you're monitoring the progress and you're in informing your goals and your treatment will work. But now we want to use the data on an organizational level, right? Because we're able to work on an individual basis, but what's really important for your organization as a whole is to help you improve using data. So what I'll typically do when I talk to an organization is I'll say, what have you learned from your data over the past year? And hopefully I don't get a deer in the headlights look. <laughs> and, um, and, and they'll be able to tell me, well, you know, we had an opportunity to improve the way we were working with individuals with depression. Or we had an opportunity... Um, to work with, um, to really improve what we were doing with protective measures uh, for um, uh, prolonged, you know, abstinence, things like that. Um, so they should be able to tell um, you and you should be able to tell yourself how they've used their aggregated data for the whole population that they serve and, um, and put that into a performance improvement process, right? A PDCA cycle or some kind of iterative process where you're continually improving on an ongoing basis. It also can be used to look at individual clinician performance, not in a punitive way, but in a coaching, development, educational, training way, right? So that your whole staff 
uh, begins to elevate in their skill and expertise. So here's an example. This is, as I mentioned, one client over the course of of 19 visits, and you can see that they're progressing um, in an upward uh, manner. But now here's 19 client records. So think about the power of that. Here's a trend line. So we have overall, um, we have our clients are progressing, right? But we do have some that are falling underneath that trend line. And then we have some that in very few contacts are way above the trend line. So you can group your data. And I think John, um, Dr. Kelly mentioned this this morning in many different ways. Uh, perhaps each one of these lines is a different unit or a different level of care or a different practitioner or a different setting. Um, you can start to look at leading practices and talk to each other. So those falling at below that trend line can talk to those falling above and say, what are you doing? How are you performing at this level? And, and see what you can take away from working with each other. If you're a multi-site organization, you can say, hey, I have some really high-performing uh, sites. What can, I, what can I bring from those sites to my sites that are not performing as well? So very powerful uh, data with 19 records. The other way you can look at your data is, remember I said that measurement-based care is um, measurement that's at intervals throughout the course of care. But that doesn't mean you can't look at the pre and the post data to see how much overall your clients have improved. So here again, 19 records. And what we're looking at is um, how they've all improved over time. So here's some really powerful information you can get. This is a total of 19 clients, as an example. Um, there was a mean number of contacts, of a little over seven visits. Um, but most of the clients received three visits, or three contacts. Um, but in those um, contacts, they had an average change over the whole course of care of 21.4 points on this particular uh, instrument. Each um, change in contact came to about uh, four uh, points. And then the average number of contacts it took to show reliable change, um, which on this scale is 15 points, demonstrated reliable change, it took four contacts. So now you can start to look again and compare across your organization. You can compare yourself with other organizations and really understand where your opportunities are to improve uh, for, in the care of your total population. So we've talked about a lot of different ways that the data can be used. Um, the, one of the things I want to mention is with your stakeholders. And it's been mentioned, I think, multiple times before. But your referral sources, your payers, your regulatory agencies, your investors, um, all are interested in how you're really moving the dial and how you're doing that, in, uh, particularly in how it pertains to clinical care. So just in, uh, in conclusion, uh, we realized that we were not moving the dial, and we course corrected. Um, we decided that measurement-based instruments uh, would make the, the biggest impact um, on clinical care. And um, 
really looking at, it's our role to really look at how organizations are evaluating uh, compliance, um, I'm sorry, evaluating their data and using their data in a practical manner. We know this is a huge change. It requires a culture change. It requires patience, uh, but it's well worth your while to embrace this. Thank you. Uh, so I'll talk a little bit about, again, from a provider perspective, from an institution uh, perspective, uh, our thoughts and how we're going to go about doing this. Um, it is a large task for providers uh, to track outcomes in a meaningful way. It is very difficult. It's a lot, it, it, is, it is a lot to ask. For, for one, it's expensive. So just gathering the data and then analyzing that data is a very big job. requires FTEs, if nothing else, and the right FTEs. When you look at the cost of uh, doing a large clinical trial, for example, that can run into the hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars. We're not in a position to do that. So we do have to look at how do we run smaller pilot studies. We can build on those pilot studies um, to then potentially get funding and so forth to do the larger work. And we don't have to do necessarily the largest work that will be left to the academic centers uh, to some extent. But a lot of the academic centers do not have the modalities of treatment that we have, the traditional inpatient uh, treatment. They tend to utilize outpatient treatment, and they do have great outcome measures for what they're doing and where they are, but in our setting, um, it's been more difficult, and it is expensive. Second, there's a, a small margin in, uh, in treatment overall, in addiction treatment. So it is hard to pay uh, for, good, for good treatment. Um, when you're talking about adding additional funds to that, you know, it, it puts pressure on us. And uh, to run an outpatient facility, for example, a good outpatient facility that accepts Medicaid and so forth, the margin is, is very small and potentially, you know, you run at a loss. Um, so th the ask to do that is, is tough, um, and we understand it. Finally, uh, there's, there's to some extent some minimal guidance in facilities like we have. Um, the providers have been focusing on treating individuals and getting them better, which is a wonderful thing. Um, but there has been some lack of expertise in that purely academic way. So the um, session that we saw right before this really warmed my heart because you know, self-proclaimed nerds like Dr. Hayes there you know, loves this stuff. He loves to look at these numbers and crunch these data and so forth. And that's what we ultimately need to figure out how to get that significance. So how are we implementing? There are a couple of ways to think about it. Um, one is you can outsource to get the primary outcome data. So one, we do have to figure out what the outcome data that we want is, but there are great programs that can do it. At Ashley, we're going to go with uh, Vista, and um, we've, we have looked at a variety of programs, but we need a program that can help to not only gather the data while they're in treatment at all levels of care, inpatient and outpatient, and evaluate that over time, because that requires FTEs. Now, if you have the infrastructure to do that, you can develop the means to do it, but no matter how it is, it's a, it is going to cost some money to implement it. But to outsource it can be a... a, a simple, so to speak, way of gathering that data over time. You can also develop an in-house team. So what we have done is 
we have partnered and borrowed somebody from Hopkins who is studying addiction medicine um, in the academic sense, and he's been doing it for a while, and we're borrowing some of his time. You know, we're borrowing it you know, at a fee, but he's been fantastic for us, uh, and we would, we would be happy to pay more for more of his time because it's so valuable. And we're utilizing him to help us with the study design, not just the study design, but how are we collecting the data to make it meaningful down the line? Because you know, my training, and I do have a master's of public health, I, there's no way I can do the analysis of this to figure out what is truly going to be significant. So I need somebody to help me you know, to do that. And he's been fantastic. And he's going to create a team that will do it. And then he's building a research department. So we're starting with writing some descriptive articles starting with some small pilot studies that we can then write some grants that may end up with some funding for us to do larger studies. So the hope is to develop, and there have been, I mean, we're not inventing the wheel here. This has been done in treatment before in places like, you know, Hazleton and, Carrollton and uh, Karen that have really, you know, robust programs. So we can look at the models and look to each other to help each other out in how to build it. We can develop partnerships. So developing partnerships with other academic centers, you know, and other treatment providers, inpatient and outpatient. And then, of course, we are here. You know, we can develop partnerships amongst ourselves. And I think that's the whole idea. And it's wonderful because we're here doing that as we speak. And we do have to look at creative funding. It would be wonderful if we could get NIH funding. It's going to be difficult to do it. That takes a long time, a lot of resources to get there. Um, but it is possible. But we can look at, um, at things like foundation grants. We can look at ways uh, from the development um, programs, the development departments, um, things like you know, an endowed um, position that may end up with discretionary funds for things like research. So there are creative ways to, to gather the funds to do it. Um, you just have to really think about it. So this is difficult, but it's absolutely doable and it's absolutely necessary. And I think we're headed in the right direction. Thank you. All right, thanks to each of you. So we do have some time for some questions, if there are any out there. You could direct them to an individual panel member or just a general question about background or implementation, and one of them could field it. Yes, right there. Is this on? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so, so the tool is, is really measuring um, the outcome. The, the goals on the plan of care are actually the objectives, the way that you're going to get there. So that can be very individualized. Um, but what you're doing then is taking that data and that's coming out on the instrument and looking back at um, the goals, the objectives, the modalities of treatment, and seeing what is getting you there to the ultimate outcomes that you're, you're trying to achieve. I'm not sure, is that answering your question? If they're not, they're not uh, exclusive to each other. The, the treatment plan, the individualized treatment plan supports you achieving the outcomes that are measured on the standardized instrument. They don't have to be standardized goals or interventions per se. Yes, right, next one. Yes, thank you. <laughs> so I think what I was saying is that when I when I used to go out to agencies um, and look at their plans for care, treatment, and services, the goals were not measurable at that time. And so now with the advent of using the measurement-based tools, uh, they are setting much more measurable goals on an individual basis. Yes, sir. Yeah, so the question is, what are some of the limitations to the pilot study that we conducted with the National Association of Addiction Treatment Providers? Um, correct. That's the question, right? I'll exclude the entirety of the question. So there are two um, primary limitations to the study. The first is that the study is a convenient sample. So I think you all heard Dr. Holman say the gold standard in research is a double-blind, randomized, controlled trial. What that would require is not possible in the current context that we're in. That would be that would require denying some people treatment um, for what we were looking at. So, the a convenient sample is a sample in a data study where you're enrolling people who come into treatment voluntarily um, who have self-selected to be there. And so from a research perspective, there is inherent what we call bias in the sample because there are individuals who might have the same substance use disorder who have not enrolled in treatment and, and they are not represented in the study. The second um, primary um, limitation with the study is, is also a self-selection issue, which is attrition in the study over time or people dropping out of the study. So if you think back to the graph that I showed about abstinence, at, at one month we reached 
many more participants than we are able to reach at 12 months, and we don't know what happened with the participants who we are not able to reach. So the most conservative estimate we might make about those participants is that they relapsed or that they, um, you know, they are no longer in recovery. There are also other ex explanations for why you might not reach participants. I often say when I see a number that I don't recognize on my phone, I also don't answer it. So we can only make speculation about why or why not participants participated a year after treatment. Yes. That's a really good question. So the question is, who do you select to follow up with? And the answer to that is everybody who you enroll in the study, should you should be trying to reach. And so for this particular study, there were eight pilot sites, each enrolled up to 125 participants. The way that those participants were selected were not, they were not cherry-picked, if you will, so that you, we are only getting participants who we think might be successful in recovery. Every single participant who entered treatment at each of those facilities at the time that the study was running was invited to participate in the study. We then do everything that we can to try to reach those all of the participants who have enrolled after treatment so that the, the bias or the bias comes from self-selection, not from the research team. Yes. So once you're in the study, you're in the study, and we are going to try to reach you. And we're going to use every means possible to enroll or to talk to or to survey everyone. Otherwise, you're, you're introducing even more bias from the researcher's perspective. Um, you, once you have a participant pool, you want to reach all of them if you can. Yeah, sure. And then we can talk afterwards. So right now, the Joint Commission doesn't require um, our providers to follow up post um, them leaving uh, their organization's treatment. Um, but as a non-Joint Commission answer from me, I, I would concur with Holland that you, you need to try to contact every single person to really have a good uh, sample and a good research result, a valid research result. And I want to make one more point on that around best practice. So whatever you're doing, you should be describing it so that anyone who is looking at your results has 
the ability to evaluate them on on these kinds of metrics. So if you're trying to reach everybody, you, you need to be able to describe how you're doing that. If you're not trying to reach everybody, you, you should be describing that as well. So your methods are just as important as the data themselves. And, so and we understand. Oh, go ahead, Doctor. So really quickly, we understand that the data isn't going to be perfect because of that loss of follow-up, but we have to try our best to do it. And there are a lot of interesting ways to uh, to, to get that follow-up besides just contacting the patient. So there are other you know web-based tools and so forth, and, and uh, smartphones and so forth that we might be able to use in the future to get better follow-up. But we have to use you know the, the entire sample as part of the the data when it's being analyzed. We're going to have time for one more question with a, from the lady in the back with a disclaimer. Tomorrow at 10.30 is a general session around the NATP pilot programs and toolkit on, on how to implement the outcome study that was done. So almost every panelist that will be there tomorrow uh, is in the room. So the deeper dive and the further conversation about that tool and that study will go with tomorrow. So as long as your question is not about the NAATP toolkit or pilot project, you're up. One thing is, um, and that it is a dilemma, no question. I think that was a, a great comment rather than a question necessarily. But another thing that's important is to, to keep people engaged in treatment overall. So, um, you know, of course, we're not looking to say, you know, treat for 28 days and then be gone. But the, the more that you uh, or the longer that you're able to engage them in treatment, the longer follow-up you'll be able to get because they're still engaged in your program. So as programs have multiple levels of care down, you know, from inpatient all the way down to outpatient, I mean, for, you know, with PHP and IOP, you know, OP, and maintain, maintain them in the program for two, three years, you know, you can really get great data over that period of time. So... I love that there are more questions, and I wish that we had time and, and the folks will be here. What I can share with you is sitting on the board of directors of NAATP that this conversation started uh, before there was an opiate epidemic uh, and before we hired Marvin. And the fact that it is in the state that it is in today where we're not only talking about doing it, but there has been a pilot study that providers are talking about how that they can collaborate together, that there is a field unto itself developing around how providers can use technology, that there are credible partners out there successfully doing this for us is a very exciting time. And one of the things that we wrapped up this conversation with the board meeting is that this topic is not going to be an event, but it's going to be a process. So I believe there's a slogan out there somewhere that talks about progress, not perfection. Uh, and I believe we're on that path. 
This panel here today is a volunteer panel. They have been gracious with their time from the invitation to conference calls to set this up, to the development of their slides and their presentation again. I'd like to personally thank each of you for your time and your excellence here. And I, if you would please join me and let them know how you think. For those of you that are new members or newish to NATP, there, there's a development session in the diplomat room. Uh, the rest of you, I hope you enjoy your evening in the Capitol. Thank you for your time this afternoon. This is the coolest stuff. Great job, you guys. This is really great. Thank great you, job, Carl. Thank you. Thank you. Remember, your mics are on. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Hi. I'm Brian. Hi, Brian. Nice to meet you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, don't forget that. Thank you very much for doing that for me. Statement of absence. Hey, how are you? Oh, hey, good. How are you? I'm good. Yeah. Do you require a certain amount of 
So um, we don't look at that, but we do. Um, so it's a $1,700 deposit, which goes directly to any needs that are owed. Yeah. So we don't retain it. Would you investigate? No. 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 Yeah, but the return on investment is what they don't. Yeah, what they don't take into account. Sometimes. No, no, no. Yeah. I think in terms of like renovation, yeah. I think that the
close friend of mine, she with Stanford Children's Hospital, using VR to like walk kids through who are in rural areas through like this one since like heart surgery and like it went like, and that's fantastic. And then she wants to enter a dark space right And she did like she didn't spend like any money on like any studying design. She created like these surveys and serving people right after they were like in the group of the saying to understand it was very much but I'm just to, for people to understand this stuff is like you know, you know, 